Luke 22, 54 through 71. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was, was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of the Lord. None of us here would disagree that um, there's a lot of darkness in this world. And the darkness I speak of doesn't concern the groaning of the earth at the, um, for redemption, as we see wildfires and floods and hurricanes and, and so much more. The reality is the planet is groaning. This is nothing new. Whatever fault goes to humanity and whatever doesn't, uh, the reality is uh, the earth is groaning. But what I speak of this morning is the darkness of heart, the darkness of mind, the darkness of action. You take a look at the news for any time whatsoever and you see the darkness of humanity. Um, certainly the darkness of the heart of humanity is plain to see as we see um, events unfold in places like Afghanistan and uh, other places overseas. We see it in our own country as well. The darkness of the American heart is on full display every day in the news. And if you subscribe at all to the Dayton Daily News, it, you don't have to look beyond that to see the kind of darkness that is inside of humanity. Certainly for many of us, the days we live in are dark, arguably darker than ever before in our lifetime. But it proves beneficial, uh, just for a moment here, to consider uh, the dark days of years past across the wonderful globe that we have the privilege of living on, actually things that have happened in the past rivaling the dark days of today. In many cases throughout history, we see such significant and hostile darkness that it makes the days we live in seem 
rather tame in comparison. You consider the brutality of a man like Idi Amin, who human rights groups say brutally killed between 100,000 and 500,000 people. Consider Mao Zedong, who ruled with such cruel policies that an estimated 40 million people died of starvation. Consider the 11 million people dead on account of the brutality of Adolf Hitler. And it's said that over 20 million people died on account of the wicked rule of Joseph Stalin. And this is just a sampling of people that have been alive in the last 80 years-ish. Jumping hundreds of years in the past, then you come to Queen Mary I, nicknamed Bloody Mary, or Genghis Khan, or Attila the Hun, and we could go on and on, all the way back to Cain, when out of anger and jealousy and covetousness, he killed his brother. I mean, how dark were the days of the Egyptian empire? How dark were the days of the Assyrian empire? How dark were the days of the Babylonian empire? How dark were the days of the, um, the Roman empire or the Crusades or the Ottoman empire or the British empire or what we see happening today in varied places around the world? Amid all the cruel years of darkness on this planet, there is one time in history when the darkness truly was the darkest it had been. Uh, The darkness of the days that Jesus entered into as he came to earth as a little one, um, pretty dark, comparatively speaking. God had been silent for centuries. There was no gospel provision God was just silent. People were left to do their own thing. People had rejected Jesus. You might imagine the level of restraining power that was pulled during those years. How dark was it when Jesus came to this planet? The darkness was enormous. No revelation of God. No, no, I mean, there's scripture, but it was misplaced, put away, not listened to. Dark days. People of God were scattered. Just a small remnant of the faithful left on the entire planet. That was dark. So we certainly get a taste of the kind of unfettered darkness that was in that day. We get a taste of it when we consider things happening in Afghanistan. We get a taste of it when things like are happening in North Korea or to the Myanmar people or in number, any, any number of places in this world. And it was dark in the entirety of the godless Roman Empire, friends, and different aspects of that darkness wasn't just in the heart of the Romans, but the supposedly God-fearing Jewish people as well, and even in some extent to the disciples themselves. Through, Through all the years of humanity on this planet, there's been darkness. Today is no exception. It comes and it goes in its intensity But the common thread of it throughout history is not found in only the despots that show up from time to time, but in the sin-stained, denying, mocking, blaspheming, and rejecting hearts of very normal next-door citizens of planet Earth toward God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. While, While there is beauty on this planet and wonder in humanity, there is significant darkness lurking as well. Not just on the things on the news that we don't like hearing and we, we are upset by, which is rightly so, but the fact that, because listen, it's easy to see the darkness in the Taliban. 
It's easy to see the darkness in the Nazi regime. It's easy to see the darkness in a group like ISIS. The harder thing to see is the darkness that exists inside of generally decent, good, even religious people. Even harder is the consideration that there is darkness that exists inside each of us outside of Christ. Don't have to go to the Taliban to see darkness. The good news, and the good news that I want to speak of this morning is amid the ever-darkening hearts of humanity shines the inextinguishable light and glory of the omnipotent King of Kings. This, this, is a, this is a long sentence that tries to grapple with the truths of what we've come to here in this text and then also the truths of what we live in today in this country, in this world. This is what I want to consider for the times, uh, the moments we have today. In, the, in this text, we don't see the brutal actions of rejection that will come uh, it, to light in the hours to come in our text. But what we do see are hints. We do see signs of the darkness that's work at work in humanity in each one of us. And upon our consideration of these hints, upon our consideration of these signs in others in our text, we would do well to consider what it is that's in the hearts of of many people around this world, most people around this world. We were looking at um, one country on Joshua Project the other night and just recognizing that out of 85 million people, there's 400,000 believers. 80 million, that would be like, that'd be like in all of the United States, uh, it would be like the population of Columbus and Dayton. That's all. That's all the Christians that there are in the whole country. There, there, there are, there's darkness all around us. And of course, it would, we would do well to consider that the darkness isn't just around us, but the darkness um, can be invasively work in us as well. If this darkness is left unchecked, if this darkness is left unrepented of, well, there's only the eventual outcome of being thrown into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew 22 and 25 and different places in God's word. Even as we consider these things, we're, we're not left in the darkness. Rather, we've seen and we've heard the good news that continues to unfold before us week after week, namely this, that in him, Je that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shone in the darkness or shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the glory of Christ amid the darkened hearts of mankind. Even as we see Jesus having been betrayed and being arrested and led away, and increasingly we see the hints and signs of darkness in the human heart, we gain a clearer than ever picture of the light of the world. So it's dark. Oh, but the picture of the light of the world, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, well, well, that is shining brightly here in our text amid the darkened hearts. So amid the ever-darkening hearts of humanity shines the inextinguishable light and glory of the omnipotent King of Kings. And so I'd like to consider that by just making three observations of the text concerning the ever-darkening hearts of humanity, and then we'll end up spending some time considering the light of the glory of Christ. First observation. Darkened hearts disassociate from Jesus. Darkened hearts 
disassociate from Jesus. We, we come to verse 54, and Luke simply tells us that Jesus has been arrested. Now he was being led away out of the garden, down the Mount of Olives, into Caiaphas' house, the, 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 the high priest. And Luke doesn't need to inform us here of anything that took place in Caiaphas' house. We can see a little bit more in other gospels, but he simply wants to inform us of the, of the path of Peter. He wants us to consider Peter. Now, recall just for a moment, the people that are reading this gospel for the first time would know precisely who Peter is as the, one of the key figures of the New Testament church. They knew he was a Christ follower. They knew he was, he was Peter. <laughs> Man, he was Peter. And so Luke is saying, okay, let's, tell you, let's talk to you about Peter for a moment. Consider this. Think about Peter following Jesus from a distance. The other disciples had followed Jesus to the Mount of Olives, but, but they disappear from the narrative as Jesus is led away. And, and Peter, partially at least, keeps his promise to follow Jesus, uh, but does so from a safe distance. And, and he gains enough courage to enter the courtyard where he sits at a fire with some other people, probably some officers or servants of the household of Caiaphas. And so not sure what he was thinking at this point, um, but one thing we do know, having seen what we saw last week, is that he was entirely unprepared for this moment. Remember in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, we talked about last week how, how Peter and the disciples, they weren't prepared because they, they had fallen asleep in their grief. They, they had not prayed, and so they weren't prepared when the, when the officers came to, to, um, to arrest Jesus. And the first thing they do is they pull out the swords because that's all they know to do. And this is kind of all Peter knows to do. He knows like, he's feel, you feel the conflict in his heart. He wants to go, and he wants to go and follow, but he's doing so from a safe distance, and he's not sure he's disassociated associating himself from Jesus, little by little. He was now being sifted by Satan, as Jesus would have said a few weeks back. He was entirely exposed at this, point, this moment. He was unprepared, and he revealed in his heart that all his boasting of undying loyalty, remember, I'll never, ever leave you, Jesus. I'll go with you all the way. Not true. Well, it would be true, but not in this moment. So there he sits at the fire, he sat there with the firelight flickering. The servant girl looked at him closely, uh, was able to see the features enough on Peter's face as the fire was flickering. You got the picture in your head when you're looking around a campfire and you can't quite see, but like the light's flashing and you, you can see people's features. So she started recognizing him. And she announces her suspicion to the group sitting around the fire. And in that moment, Peter, who is uh, known famously as the rock, um, not, not the rock, you know, he was the initial rock, yeah, Peter the rock, and, and he was cracking under the pressure. He just was. Jesus' prophecy that he would deny knowing him began to be fulfilled. It's interesting that back in chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And what was it Peter answered? The Christ of God. So Peter knew who Jesus was. He was the Christ. At least the Christ that he thought he was. But now with the foundations of what he thought he knew about the Messiah crumbling before him, he fumbles the ball and he blurts out, woman, I don't know him. And all in all, this happens two more times. Verse 58 states that a bit later, someone else has been looking at him, accuses him of being one of them. 
One of, one of those guys that follows Jesus, Peter denies it again. This time, uh, even though Luke doesn't say it, Matthew says that he, uh, he denied it with an oath. It was serious. This was serious denial. Verse 59 states that an hour had passed, just one hour, and Jesus was still being questioned, and another man had spent enough time looking at Peter in the flickering light of the fire and actually hearing him talk for so long began to recognize he's not from around here. He's a Galilean. Not from the region. Clearly someone who's been deluded enough to follow Jesus. And, and this man is so insistent, and Peter flatly denies knowing Jesus one final time, doing so the way Matthew describes it, as, as uh, uh, through curses and, and through um, swearing. Pretty, pretty volatile denial. This was, no, I don't know him. This was vehemently denying that he knew Jesus one last time and it proved to be the very last time he would ever deny knowing Jesus Christ again. Which is a remarkable reality of God's forgiveness. At this point, the rooster crows. You might imagine the weight that is on Peter because he's remembering what Jesus had just said a few hours ago. Entirely devastating. Peter's close enough to what's happening to Jesus here that when the rooster crows, Jesus turns from his questioners and looks straight to Peter. He knows precisely where Peter was. He knows Peter. He knows what Peter's going to do and what he just did because here's the rooster. And Jesus looks at him. It's really remarkable. In that moment, all the stares and accusations for those around him became meaningless to him. They, it just the look from Jesus overwhelmed all of that. And his response was, was right. He went out, he ran out, and he wept bitterly. A man who was becoming broken uncertain of anything but his failure in this moment and his own kind of betrayal in that moment, but beginning nonetheless to turn back, to turn towards, he was beginning to be broken, which is the second part of Jesus' prophecy. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows, but you will turn back, he says, and you will strengthen the brothers. That's good news. But what was it that made Peter follow from a distance? What, what was it that made Peter just try to blend in with the people in the courtyard in kind of a, a confusing, covert effort? What was it that eventually made Peter deny knowing Jesus? What, what is it that makes you and I follow Jesus from a distance? What, what is it that makes you and I try to just blend in with people in this world uh, to, in, in this kind of confusion in our life and try to be a covert Christian somehow or a private Christian where it's, where it's like... We're, we're, we're called to profess Christ, but what is, it that's, what is it that's alive in our hearts? What is it that's at work in our hearts that causes us to just kind of sink back and just kind of blend in and just be our own person? And hopefully nobody sees that I'm a Christian, but I am. Well, perhaps for Peter, it was fear that made him cave. It certainly played a part. But I think perhaps more foundationally was that Peter did not grasp at this point the glorious worth of the one whom he had spent the last three years with. And I think that's our problem too. 
So we shrink back, we disassociate ourselves in some ways because we somehow have darkened eyes and we can't quite make out the glory of the King of Kings. Peter knew him to be the Messiah to some rather, uh, to, to, uh, to a great extent, but a Messiah more of his own making than the actual Son of God. It's another example of someone being so very close in relationship with Jesus, aware of his greatness, aware of his uniqueness, even loving him to some great extent, yet still evidently uncertain as to his infinite worth. And so when temptation comes, he, he caves. Not only was he prayerless the night before, but he did not have a grand vision of the glory of King Jesus, even though he was close in. A day would be coming when Peter would know the infinite worth of the risen and ascended king, a day when the Holy Spirit would fill him with power from on high and propel him into never denying him again, but strengthening the brothers as Jesus had prophesied against spreading the good news of the kingdom of God with boldness and with power and with absolute certainty. But on this night, this night, this very dark night in the courtyard of Caiaphas, Peter is, is fairly unaware of the true identity of Jesus, though he'd been with him so long and heard so much from him. I wonder if the last three years went flashing through Peter's mind at this point, looking back at the miracles, looking back at the deliverances, looking back at the teachings, looking back at the time of the Mount of Transfiguration. I wonder if he thought about the storm uh, that Jesus stilled that one night that resulted in the disciples uh, asking this question, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waters to obey him? The question like that, that he might be asking right in this moment. Who is this? He knew I was going to deny him. He knew the rooster was going to crow. He looked right at me. Who is this? Well, remember that for months now, Jesus has been telling them about what was going to happen. And in fact, he had just reminded them literally a few hours prior, but Peter still did not have an understanding of what Jesus had come to do as the Christ of God, as the Messiah, as the anointed one of God. Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one. I do think that as Satan was sifting Peter in this moment, he was attacking him like he always does at the place of belief. At the place of belief specifically in the true identity and worth of Jesus. Peter was still asking the question in this moment, who then is this? In the moment when he was to decide who to follow. And when he was pushed to answer the question, he went with his flesh. He went with what, was, what, was, what he was most comfortable with, and that was self-preservation. Because he, he thought more of himself than he thought of, of Jesus in this moment. He denied knowing Jesus, and he disassociated himself from him. Now, Peter, who had enjoyed walking and talking with the very light of the world for three years, was still walking in some sort of darkness in his heart as he disassociated himself from Jesus in this moment out of some sort of self-preservation amid his prayerless misunderstanding of the very identity of the Son of Man, the Son of God. And I wonder how many of us live in a state of prayerless understanding of the very identity of the Son of Man, Son of God. If Peter 
could live day in and day out for three years with Jesus, having seen all that he did and heard all that he heard, and yet remain in the darkness of unbelief that resulted in him denying him in the moment of difficulty. Well, how about you? And how about me? And how about your neighbor? And how about the Christian across the world? There's a danger, isn't there, in the darkness that exists around us and in us? Those who disassociate from Jesus are those who aren't entirely convinced of the worth and identity of Jesus. And, and again, there's a day coming when Peter would know the worth. And he would give his very life for Jesus. And Jesus had told Peter that he had prayed for him and that his faith wouldn't fail, that he would turn back and strengthen his brothers. And we know from the book of Acts that's what he did. Peter didn't walk in darkness then, but he walked in the light and in the power of the Holy Spirit. But on this night, it was a night of darkness in Peter. And it's the last we hear Peter now uh, for a little bit. He just kind of disappears. Next time we're going to see him and hear about him, he's running to the empty tomb. The darkness grows more intense as we move to verse 63 where we see that darkened hearts don't simply disassociate themselves from Jesus, but darkened hearts blaspheme Jesus. Verse 63 says, The men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And then they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now who were these guys? They were holding Jesus. Verse 52, I think, gives us an indication. In verse 52, it says that uh, Jesus had said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? And these are the ones, the, the chief priests and officers of the temple and the elders, these are the ones who made up the arresting party, the, the ones holding him. And what they had tried to do unsuccessfully in cornering Jesus and making him look foolish in weeks past, you might remember those sermons when they tried to do that and they ended up not being able to say anything about it. Well, now they corner him. Now they have cornered him. This is the hour of darkness is the way Jesus describes it. And they, with unhindered joy, mock him and, and proceed to beat him and blaspheme him. In Luke 18, Jesus had predicted this very thing, that he will deliver, uh, for he, Jesus, will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, and he will be shamefully treated and spit upon. Now, these, these men who feigned a love for God mocked the very God that held them together with the word of his power. You think about that. They had no idea. These hearts were so darkened they couldn't see the light of the world standing right inches before their eyes. Instead of the worship that was due him, they mocked him and they beat him. But, but then it got worse. These men knew that people looked to Jesus to be a prophet. 
And in their absolute dark ignorance, they ridiculed him as a pathetic liar who's finally exposed for the fraud that he was, that they believe him to be at least. And you see the blindness. They, they don't see it. Do you see the darkness in their hearts? Do you see the darkness in their minds? We do, looking back, but in the moment, they didn't, and the people around them certainly didn't see it. They were caught up in it. And, and do you think that you may have joined? Do you think you and I would have joined them in that moment? Likely. Now, however dark their hearts were, there's serious irony going on here as well, because Jesus said just the very fact that they were doing what they were doing proves that Jesus is a prophet, a prophet of prophets. He, he, he had prophesied specifically what they were just doing right there as they were mocking him, as they were calling him out in this, in this way, treating him as a robber in the garden. Uh, he, had, he, had, he, had just, um, he had just said... Uh, uh, Peter was going to deny him three times. He had just said the rooster was going to crow when Peter denied him three times. Uh, he had he, he said he was going to be treated like a robber, and he was in the garden, been numbered with the transgressors, as, as verse 52 says. Not to mention, like again, the very mocking and beating that they were doing right there. Uh, he, he just is pretty much said earlier on that these guys always treat the prophets this way. This is how Israel's treated the prophets for generations upon generations. And now, guess what? Doing it again, right now in this moment. The darkness of the heart of man and our unbelief does not sit in passivity. There is no passive darkness. It is a hostile darkness. It erupts into mocking when pressed especially and proceeds to beating. And in verse 65, we read that they were saying things that amounted to blasphemy. And you know, when a person mocks someone, you know, we know that there's something else going on in our heart. When someone mocks you, how, how do you feel? It doesn't feel good, does it? It feels, it feels terrible. Our society today seems pretty skilled at mocking others and enjoying it along the way, hearing the darkness of mocking others from either the Oval Office or the factory lunchroom or the struggling marriage or the disgruntled parent. Mocking a person is not acceptable no matter how normalized we've allowed it to become in our lives. It's perhaps not the darkest of dark things, but it certainly doesn't project light and it certainly doesn't project purity. We recognize this very thing when we're like three years old. That's not right, mommy. Mocking is always, always demeaning of another person made in the image of God and is entirely and always unacceptable for one living in the light. It's an action of darkness against another human being and there's nothing at all funny about it unless you live in the dark and you enjoy the darkness to some extent. But in our text, this darkness of mocking isn't simply being done against another human being although it is being done against another human being as well, but also to the eternal Son of Man, Son of God, the one whom the, the Apostle Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1, the one by whom all things were created, the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That was the one they were mocking. 
So this mocking simply turns blasphemous. This darkness has increased from the denial of knowing Jesus as the mocking, or to the mocking of the glory of Jesus. At the core of the darkness, though, is the same culprit, absolute blindness to the glory of the risen or the, the living Christ. These men mocking Jesus had no idea. They could not care less. He was a nobody to them. This was the creator of the world, the creator of them. And they mocked him, and they blasphemed him. They were lost, utterly lost in their darkness, and mocking blasphemy and physical brutality was the eventual outcome. Because mocking with words out of one's lips reveals a dark heart that will produce a sweat across the head. The volatility of words is the physical brutality of words can easily turn into physical brutality. You say the wrong thing. You, you, you disagree with me, I will become violent. We've seen it in our day. This is what happens here as well. It's dark. This is the darkness that is in the heart of man. This is the hostility towards God that Paul speaks of. From Genesis 3 to this very day, that very darkness has continued to ebb and flow in its outward prevalence and always been alive and at work in the heart of man. And it's at the core um, darkness of unbelief in God. Now, how might this mocking darkness be alive in your heart? Because you might say, I've never mocked Jesus. I'd... Turn to Galatians for a moment, Galatians chapter 6. We'll just stay here for a couple of minutes. It's not going to be on the screen, I don't believe. Just was thinking about this this morning. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Okay, think about Peter for a moment. Thinks himself as something when he's nothing. He deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then the reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we'll reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunities, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. There is a kind, I think, the kind of mocking of God that we participate in when we walk in sin and think there will be no recompense. When we think that... When we think that we can just live in darkness and not reap a whirlwind of judgment. God says, I will not be mocked. Just something to think about. Side point. Third observation. Darkened hearts question and ultimately reject Jesus. Verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to the council, and they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. 
But he said to them, look, if I tell you, you're not going to believe. And, and even if I ask you kind of like the same question, you're not going to answer. Well, why does he say that? Well, partially because he's already, he's already tried to talk with them, and they're not looking for answers. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And so they said, well, so, so you're saying you are the Son of God? And he said to them, well, you say that I am. Then they said, well, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from our, from, for ourselves out of his own lips. So the sun's risen now, right? No more darkness in the air, in the, in the sky. It's, it's the sun has risen, light breaks through, but the power of darkness is as strong as ever as the chief priests and scribes lead Jesus away to the council. And under Roman control of the day, historians believe that the council would have included the religious power brokers of the day, uh, leading priests, wealthy noblemen, similar folks. Some, some commentators think Joseph of Arimathea would have possibly been in this council, although silently being slowly swayed, if that's the case, speculation. But as the Romans weren't entirely interested in settling every dispute and dealing with any number of administrative matters, they left local councils in, in place um, to arrest people, to take evidence, and to make preliminary examinations so as to present a case to the governor, as we know that they're going to do in chapter 23. So they're like gathering information up right now against Jesus. So they've arrested him, they've mocked him, they've beat him, they've blasphemed him, and now they lead him over to the council where they begin to ask him questions, and not just any questions, but there is one question that comes to his lips. There's, there's other things going on that we read about in, in Matthew and Mark, but in this text, there's one question, and it's the one question that, G, uh, that Luke has been answering for Theophilus from chapter one on, and it is, is Jesus the Christ? Uh, Luke, Luke was telling Theophilus, Jesus is the Christ. Here, this is the question. This is the crux of the matter. Is he the anointed one or not? Is he, is he or not? Is he, are you going to trust him or not? This is the question that is being asked. All the reports, all the miracles, all the healings on the Sabbath that so infuriated them over their, their, their last three years, all the friendship with people that, that Jesus had, who are considered outcasts by them, all of such beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness and salvation. All of, all of that stuff be, becomes entirely peripheral in the enormity of the question, if you are the Christ, tell us. And it's a good question. It's a question that you must also ask, and it's a question that everybody on this planet must ask as well. Philippians 2 tells us that everyone on that final day will bow the knee and say, you are the Christ, you are the Lord. So these guys have heard Jesus' teaching. They've seen what Jesus has done, what, what he's done numerous times, over and over and over again. And they already know what he's going to say. The reason they're asking him is just to corner him and get him to say something that's going to get him in trouble with the Romans. So they know what he's going to say, but they're far from any sort of belief of it. They think he's a nut, and they just want to condemn him to death. They think he's more than a nut. They think he's a dangerous nut. 
a blasphemous nut when they are the ones being blasphemous. They've already tried them, tried Jesus in their dark hearts. He's been found woefully wanting and deserving of death as far as they were concerned. This is why Jesus responds the way he does when he says, look, if I tell you, it's almost that he's saying right here, I'm not, I'm not playing. If I, if I tell you, I've just lived it three years. I've told you over and over and over again. If I tell you the answer here, you won't believe it. And if I ask you, well, who do you think I am? Like, you're not going to answer. You remember when he did that with John the Baptist? Who do you think John the Baptist? Who sent John the Baptist? They started, what's, 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 we don't know. That's how strong these guys were. Jesus' response is just what he's been doing this whole time. The reality is that it did not matter what Jesus was going to say in this moment. Their hearts were already made up. They were, the, the darkness had enveloped them. Their problem wasn't a lack of evidence for who he was, but a lack of openness to the possibility of belief. And that's how far it had gotten. This, 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 was, this was like, I've been calling it the trajectory of rejection, this resistance to God. And then it kind of turns into like a, question, a questioning and resistance of God turns into rejection of God and then opposition to God. There is this, this, there's moments along the way of the resistance and there's moments along the way of even, even some level of rejection and some level of opposition, a great opposition even. There, there gets to be a place where it's too far and we've talked about that in the past as well. You've gone too far in your resistance and rejection and opposition. And the, and the reality is, is like you've been shown so much. We talked about that a few weeks back in Hebrews chapter 6 when, when I brought that point out to get to a place where there was just a lack of openness to the possibility of belief. This can't be true. I do not believe it. And I'm not going to follow him. And I want him dead. They, they will not believe him. And this is the attitude that is underneath and, and informing um, the heart of darkness. Resistance, rejection, opposition. One commentator states this, he says, their refusal to believe means that they are guilty of more than just speaking a word against the Son of Man, but the unforgivable sin of resisting the Holy Spirit. Which is what Stephen says in the first part of Acts where he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit. And then he gets stoned by these same people. The darkness in their hardened hearts presents an overwhelming barrier to repentance and reconciliation with God. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, in that moment in time when, when being questioned in the kangaroo court of the Israelite religious leaders, Jesus reveals himself with the utmost clarity when he says this, but from now on, okay, I'm not going to answer your question, and you wouldn't answer even if I asked you, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Oh, this was clear. This was clear to these religious leaders. They knew precisely what he was saying. He's saying he's the Son of Man. Jesus had said that, like, 
82 different times throughout the Gospels. The members of the council who were very biblically um, literate, they caught the drift of what Jesus was saying. This wasn't just a drift. This was, this was like straight up, I am the Son of Man. I am who you say I am or who you think I might be. It was a bold declaration that he was the one that Daniel wrote about in Daniel chapter 7. And they knew that what Daniel had said. They, they knew this, that where Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, to the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed and Jesus declared clearly that he is that guy he is that son of man he is the glorious son of man and that while they will mock him and while they'll blaspheme him and while they'll question him and while they'll reject him in utter belief and derision as of this time on he was going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God where he would rule and reign and from where he would return to judge the nations this, this, is, this is the Jesus that they didn't see. This was the Jesus that Peter didn't even get to know in this way at that point. This was, this was not the Messiah that Peter was looking for. This was not the man these guys thought they were beating. This is not the man that these people were questioning. This was the man that these people were questioning, but they didn't know. They were clueless. They were just so wrapped up in their darkness that didn't matter what Jesus said, didn't matter what he did, didn't matter what he accomplished, they were not going to believe it. So in their darkness, rather than responding with thoughtfulness and humble consideration, having heard the clear declaration from the very mouth of their creator, they stopped their ears. And not just one person, not just two people, but it says all of them, the whole assembly incredulously cried out. And listen, they got it. They got it. They cried out. It's, it's like they cried out, oh, oh, so you're saying you are the Christ. You're saying you are the Son of God. They, they got it in that moment. But they did not believe it. And so you can hear, and you can accept to some extent a reality of it, but you can choose in the moment to reject him entirely. Now these guys were found opposing the king of kings vehemently, and nothing would sway them. And that's a scary, scary place of unrepentance. Jesus had made it clear who he was. The clear testimony of Jesus amid all the darkened hearts of the humanity around him was that he was the light of the world, the son of God, God himself. The apostle John would say it this way, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was what? The light 
of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But But to all who did receive him, all who do receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, not uh, uh, who were born not of blood of the uh, will or the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is this is a, a beautiful reality of the light shining in the darkness. The world is dark. The world was dark, but the light came into the world. The glory of Christ shone amid the dark hearts of humanity, and that light is inextinguishable. Now, what do we make of all this? Two applications, outside of any applications that we've had along the way. The first thing to think about is that there is danger for the darkened heart. Now, when we're not mindful of the worth of Jesus, we will succumb to fear and denial like Peter. Peter knew Jesus well, but not as much as he thought, not as well as he thought. He was confused. He had been so self-assured, but in the difficulty of the moment, a moment that he was unprepared for, not only in his prayerlessness, but in the fact that he really hadn't seen the glory of Christ. He hadn't get the worth of Jesus, even though he had seen so much. He had experienced so much. Uh, Like I said, he, he would in days to come, but for now, his denial points out that he doesn't value Jesus, and he doesn't see him as worth living for and dying for. And so he caves, and he tried to blend in. He didn't like the questioning stares of the people around him. He didn't want to admit knowing Jesus, and not just knowing Jesus, but actually following Jesus. So let me ask you the question, do you know the worth of Jesus? Do you know the worth of Jesus, not just on paper. Well, yeah, I know Jesus is. Like literally, if pressed with the question, are you one of them? Think you would respond like Peter was certain that he was going to respond? Yes, yes, I am. Or would you respond more like the way Peter did respond? One danger for the darkened heart of a supposed follower of Jesus is being satisfied with something less than the absolute treasure and worth of King Jesus. He is worthy of it all. He is worth our all. Peter would one day, after having seen the empty tomb, heard Jesus teach him for 40 days, enjoy the gift of repentance and the indwelling and empowering and filling of the Holy Spirit, know without a shadow of a doubt that King Jesus was worth his very life. It did not make things less frightening for him at times. I mean, there was a lot of, a lot of stuff that happened in Peter's life from this point on and there were some scary things and he's a real guy he's really fearful but king jesus had become his treasure and so everything else paled in comparison his delight was in jesus and so he would echo in his life the words of paul in philippians where he says but whatever gain i had i count as loss for the sake of christ indeed i count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of 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 knowing christ jesus my lord 
For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and I might know the power of his resurrection and I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the question is, how about you? Do you know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? Or are you satisfied with a general spirituality that has the stench of a whitewashed tomb that looks great on the outside but filled with dead man's bones? Because, listen, darkness spreads. It goes deep, and it means there's an absence of light. As we choose to not listen to Jesus and his revelation of himself, our hearts will grow increasingly dark. There is only one way to drift, and that's backwards into the darkness where the light does not exist. And in the end, we will utterly reject him, and we will utterly mock him and deride him and blaspheme him, just like every other hostile enemy of God who will one day, again, sadly, yet decisively, be thrown into the utter darkness by the Son of Man, this King Jesus, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is eternally significant danger for the darkened heart. And listen, friends, this, this, is, this is potentially true for some of you who, who may not believe in Jesus or trust in Jesus, have not seen Jesus as your treasure. This is true of you today, but if you are, if you do trust in Jesus, like we'll get to in a second, if you do believe in him and you trust in him, look, we watch the news as though all things are equal. All things are not equal. There is so much darkness, not just in the actions of people, but in the hearts of people who don't know Jesus. How can we expect so-and-so or so-and-so to make decisions that we want them to make, whatever, when they may not be seeing? How, how can they walk in a way that is in the light? They, we don't know. We don't know where people are at. And so we sit in the, on our chairs and we judge the news. We judge people in all sorts of ways when when really we don't know what's going on in our heart, and so it should cause us some level of empathy, not anger. It should cause us empathy for the ones around this world, around this country, in our neighborhoods, and in our families who don't know Jesus. Rather than being all torqued off about everything, why don't, we, why don't we cry about it and pray for them to have their eyes open to see and that, that any darkness that exists in my own heart to be swept away by the light of the glory of Christ, that I may be satisfied in him and speak gently and graciously with people rather than being a people like we are made to be known today who mock the other people. Oh, may it not be so. May we declare the excellencies and the glory of Christ in all his brilliant light, not the junk of darkness. Second application point that I want to make is that while there's danger for the darkened heart, there is hope for the darkened heart. Oh, there is hope. When Peter denied Jesus, when Peter had taken his eyes off of Jesus, when Peter lost any sense of the treasure of Jesus, Jesus knew exactly where he was, and Jesus was watching him. He looked right at him, and he loved Jesus. Or he loved Peter, I should say. And the reality is, you're here this morning, and, and Jesus sees you. No matter how dark 
how much darkness you're in right now. Jesus is, you're here and Jesus is looking right at you this morning. Through this word, he's looking right at you. And he's compelling you to trust him and believe on him. To turn from the darkness of unbelief and let the light of the glory shine into your darkened heart. And commit all the darkness of humanity, whether before Christ, during the life of Christ, or 2,000 years where we are today, the light of the glory of Christ continues to shine brightly. He is the Son of God. He has revealed it. He declared it. He sits at the right hand of the power of God right this instant. And he is going to return to judge the living and the dead and to present all who have entrusted themselves to him, all who have seen him as the pearl of greatest price, all who have seen him as the treasure in the field worth selling everything for, to present us blameless with great joy before his presence to enjoy him forever and ever. Oh, there is hope for the darkened heart. And it is in trusting in the light of life, that is Jesus. The question at play here this morning, the one that if I could have you ask this question and have you, have you interact with news and interact with your neighbors and interact with your prayers for people in this world is at the very center of this entire book, the question that we must come to, is Jesus the Savior whom God promised to send or is he not? Is he the Christ you, you have to answer that question. There is no neutral answer. One pastor wrote this. He says, what answer would you give? As you read the gospel, Jesus is asking if you believe that he's the Christ, believe the promise of the Christmas angels, he says. Accept the testimony of Peter's confession. Trust the words of the man who was betrayed by Judas, tried by the Sanhedrin, condemned by Pilate and crucified at Calvary, believe that Jesus is the Savior whom God promised to send. Friends, there is hope for the darkened heart, and the hope is found in surrendering to the King of Kings, not just at one moment in time, but uh, where, where you have some level of clarity in a moment, but uh, regularly and often repenting of the darkness that tries to crowd in and believing in the good news of Jesus Christ, believing specifically that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Look, as the, as the darkness may seem to be increasing today to many people, if you just keep listening to the news alone, at least, can I encourage you of something entirely different? Entirely different way to look at it. The light of the glory of Christ is spreading increasingly across this world. CNN's not going to tell you that. Fox News isn't going to tell you that. Whatever your favorite news channel is, not going to tell you anything about that. They're not going to tell you anything about the millions of things that Jesus is doing, that King Jesus is doing in your heart and in the hearts of those around you and in the hearts of people all around the world. They're not going to tell you because all they want you to know is what's going on here and how bad everything is here. The light of the glory of Christ is spreading amid the darkness of human hearts. Let that encourage you and cause you to pray with, with anticipation and expectation that Jesus, Jesus is ruling, Jesus is reigning, his kingdom knows no end, nothing can suppress it.
And where the light of the glory of Christ is, darkness cannot remain in you and me and lands across the world where the gospel of the kingdom continues to grow and grow in the hearts of people, whether it's kings or presidents or people just like you or myself and believe that Jesus is the treasure of treasures, that he is King Jesus, and as he is known by more and more and more people, and when the church finally gets a grip on the fact that Jesus is worth everything to us, and he's willing, we're willing to die for him and willing to live for him, whether in Dayton, Ohio, or across the world in varying lands, now what, what hope there is for those who are in the light? amid the ever-darkening hearts of humanity, shines brightly, brilliantly, the inextinguishable light and glory of the omnipotent King of Kings. And let us not forget that, but let us live in the good of it.